Psalm 67 is God's call to worship. God desires that all humanity worship him. In fact, one of the goals of evangelism is the worship of God. 2 Corinthians 4.15 states, For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. In other words, Paul is saying that the grace which is spreading, that's the message of the gospel, that's evangelism, as it spreads more and more, the result is more and more people will worship God. They'll give thanks to him and glorify him. And so there's a direct connection between evangelism and worship. We could say then that a lack of evangelism results in a loss of worship, and the lack of worship results in a loss of evangelism. When we respond to God's call to worship, it should also give us a desire to see others worship God. And as we desire to see others worship God, may we in turn then engage in the ministry of evangelism. Now the inscription of Psalm 67 informs us that it was written for the choir director. Thus it was composed for the purpose of worship in the temple. It was originally meant to be accompanied with stringed instruments. Next, the inscription designates it as a psalm. Now, this designation denotes that Psalm 67 is a sacred song sung to a deity. That's what is meant by the term psalm here, a sacred song sung to a deity. Psalm 67 is also described here in the inscription as a song. The Hebrew term translated as song denotes a joyous and triumphal song. So, Psalm 67 was not just meant to be worshipped a worship song, but it was to be sung in an upbeat manner. It was a song of revelry, not a sorrowful dirge. Indeed, the worship of God should be the climax or crescendo of our very life and being. There should be no greater joy than to enter into the worship of God. And so as we look at Psalm 67 and God's call to worship, in verses 1 and 2 we're going to see the purpose of worship, in verse 3 and 4, the petition in worship, and then verse 5 and 7, the pinnacle of worship. So let's begin with verse 1 and 2, the purpose of worship. God be gracious to us and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. This psalm begins with the ironic or priestly blessing found in number 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the psalmist cries out to God to be gracious to us and to bless us. The verb be gracious refers to the unmerited favor of God and his unconditional love. You see, as God accepts us in his grace and saves us from our sin, he will in turn then what? Bless us. Above all, this blessing is the presence of God. He'll cause his face to shine upon us. That is, his shining face is his smile, his pleasure, his delight in us, which again is the consequence of his grace or mercy. And the consequence of God's grace or mercy and blessing is that his way, that's his purpose, or his law will be known on the earth. And his salvation will be known amongst all nations. In fact, Isaiah prophesies that one day all the nations will flow to Zion or Jerusalem and will say, Isaiah 2 verse 3, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways or teach us his laws. 
So the fulfillment of this call for God's salvation to come to the nations is now taking place. It's going to be fulfilled in the future, but currently it is taking place as the gospel spreads. And so that is the purpose of worship. Ultimately, as we worship God, salvation is going to be known amongst all the earth, and we're going to be know, we're going to know his, we're going to be receiving His grace and His blessing. Now, the petition in worship is found in verse three and four. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Selah. In these verses, the psalmist calls for a response to God's salvation. And the second line here is parallel to the first line. Let let the peoples praise you. Let all the peoples praise you. It's emphasizing the universality of the gospel with the word all. And it's important for us to note that this call to praise is the call to evangelism. The great commission given by Jesus to the disciples begins with the fulfillment of this imperative. Going into all the world, teach them to observe, and what? Make disciples, baptizing those who are disciples. Furthermore, the psalmist calls for the nations to be glad and sing for joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Literally give a ringing cry. Now why should the nations be happy? Why should they be joyful? Because in God's coming, idols will be destroyed and all oppression will cease. All oppression will cease. The nations will be liberated from injustice when God takes his place as judge. And with the destruction of evil, he will govern, that is, he will lead and guide all people in the perfect will of his kingdom. And these promises connect clearly with the servant song in Isaiah. When the there the prophet tells of Yahweh's servant who will be filled with his spirit, that is the Messiah. In Isaiah 42.1, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. In 42.4, he will not fail till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. You ask the question, who is Jesus? Simply, he is Lord, and he's Lord of the universe. And so the petition in worship is for people to praise the Lord. And because that's the petition for all the peoples of the world to praise the Lord, that means that the petition also involves the ministry of the gospel. We need to be praying that God gives us opportunity of spreading the gospel. We need to pray that that the gospel will go forth because the world is not going to respond in worship to God. Worship of God is not going to increase until evangelism increases. And that brings us to the pinnacle of worship in verses 5 through 7. Verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Now, verse 5 is an exact repetition of verse 3. This time, the following verse, though, speaks of the results or the pinnacle of worship. And what is that? The fruitfulness of the earth. Notice in verse 6, that verb has yielded its produce. It denotes the result of the people's worship. There's a rich harvest. There's the sign of God's blessing. There's the affirmation of his people. And moreover, the people that, uh, to the people, this God is what? Our God. There's that personal relationship with God. And interesting uh, that 
that personal relationship here is noted, meaning that those who worship God are in a personal relationship with God. You cannot worship God. You can attempt to worship God. You'll worship something, but you won't worship the true living God unless you're redeemed, unless you're one of his children, unless he's your God. The thought of God's blessing is repeated again in verse 7 with the conclusion that all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Now, what is fear here? It's godly awe and reverence. And so when the, the, the ultimate conclusion, the pinnacle of worship, is the entire earth, all the peoples of, of the earth, worshiping God, being filled with reverence for God, demonstrating godly awe to God, the God who judges the nations, the God who blesses those nations with his bounty. Psalm 67 is a particularly appealing call to worship. You see, worship is always a response to God's initiative. It's a response to God's mercy. Worship is a response to God's blessing. And, you know, we have been the recipients of God's initiative. Uh, he sought us. He saved us. We should worship him. We've received his mercy. We should worship him. We're, we're blessed by him over and above all that we can think and ask, and therefore we should worship him. Praise is the appropriate reaction on our part to the revelation of who God is and what he has done. It's the re appropriate reaction to the revelation of God's ways. It's the appropriate revelation of his salvation. And our praise is to be not a sour, ho-hum response, but one of upbeat revelry, literally a ringing cry of joy because God reigns and God reigns in justice. God reigns in truth. And as we praise him, we will begin to see the fruitfulness of that worship. Other people will come to know the Lord as their Savior. And ultimately, God, in turn, will pour out his favor on those who worship him. And there will be various signs of that blessing. But ultimately, the biggest sign of that blessing is one day the nations are going to come to him in reverence. Now, that's not going to happen until at the, the end of the tribulation, the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But that is the day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some to eternal blessing, some to eternal damnation. But we praise God that while we're here, while we're not yet at that point, and whether that point may come in our lifetime or not, we don't know. But what our responsibility here today is to be moving in that direction. That means we're to be engaged in worship. And, you know, worship wherever we're at. Maybe while we're at work, we can be worshiping in our spirit. Maybe we're at home, we're in worship. We're at church, we're worshiping. You know, whether we're in bodily together or whether we're together in the spirit because we're scattered abroad doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is worship is a heart attitude that responds with praise and joy to who God is and what he has done. But as we worship, here's something else that we need to give consideration to. And I go back to the, what we said at the beginning. And that is that the more we desire to worship, the more we're going to desire other people to worship. And that means we're going to 
engage in evangelism. And so as we think about this call to worship, this call to worship is also a call to engage people with the gospel. There's nothing greater to rejoice in than when a sinner comes to salvation. What a great day of worship that can be. Even the angels in heaven are caught up in worshiping God when a sinner comes to salvation. And so as we think about our worship, as we think about responding to God's call to worship, let's also consider who God is laying on our hearts, people that we may not even know, but who can we engage, who can we share the gospel with, that they might come to saving knowledge and in turn become a worshiper of the Lord. See, the great vision for the world of worship here is a mandate for evangelism. Wherever the gospel's going forth in power, praise is the result. And the fruitfulness is that God pours out his love and his spirit indwells every repentant sinner. Father in heaven, we thank and praise you, Lord, for this psalm. We thank you for this call to worship, Lord, that, uh, that you have set forth and that, Lord, we know one day is going to be fulfilled. At the millennial kingdom, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you, are, your son, Lord, is the Lord, is Yahweh is King of kings, is Lord of lords. But Father, while we are yet on this earth, while we still draw breath, I pray that we would respond to this call, that Father, we wouldn't wait for that day, but we'll now begin to worship you in, in, in awe, in reverence, uh, with, with joy, with gladness, with revelry. And uh, Father, I also pray that Lord, you'd give us a heart to see others worship with us. And in doing so, Lord, that you might give us a desire to share the gospel so that, uh, Father, another sinner could be found and could be recipient of your saving grace and another sinner now become a saint, a saint who lifts you up and worships you. And, Father, may we engage in that activity while, we're, while it is still day as we look forward to that great day of the Lord that is coming. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.